0: Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu horror films and horror gaming in general. My name is Paul Fricker. I'm Scott albert and I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're looking at two more mythos deities, Yig and Gatana Thoa.
1: But before we get into all that godly stuff, what is going on?
2: So, Paul, I understand you've been flying out overseas again.
0: Yeah, uh, went to Gen Con at the start of August. And for the first time, I know you're always very careful about this, Matt, when you book transatlantic flights, about making sure you allow enough time for connections. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I thought I'd done that and I wasn't the only one on that day. There seemed to be a whole bunch of us missing connections. But anyway, I got to uh, Indianapolis by about midnight. I made it the same day, which was good. Let's see. Ran a couple of games. Ran uh, Full Fathom 5 with U2 Can Cthulhu, the group who run a bunch of Cthulhu games at American conventions. And one of the things they do, they make a point of, is, is making it a I don't know what you'd call it, uh, an enhanced experience, their game. So they'll have more than one GM. So they'll have the keeper and then I'll I'll have a a keeper's assistant, maybe doing an NPC and and things like that. And that adds quite a lot to their games. So there was me running Full Fathom 5 and four of them (laughs) running NPCs from the crew, which was a lot of fun. Uh, And seven players. Wow. (laughs) It wasn't a LARP, but it was a little bit larpy at times with people getting up and moving around the room and acting things out so uh yeah that was a lot of fun did anyone manage to get in the
2: immortal line of you're gonna need a bigger table
0: no they didn't no that well i guess that the four assistant keepers weren't sat at the table uh that was just the players and and i'd kind of get up and join them sometimes but uh the players were at a big round table and in fact we had an adjoining room where we could split the party sometimes as well so Chief Brody would be disappointed and then on a much smaller scale I ran a, a little game for just for a handful of friends back in the hotel room uh, one of the scenarios from Mansions of Madness 2 the upcoming collection there was the, uh, the new Pendragon box set was very popular as was Rivers of London that was those were two of the big new things and a couple of new books for RuneQuest as well so there was some um, new things on the booth all that and the N is So, yeah, good time. Did you catch up with any listeners out there? I did. Every now and again, I'd be chatting with people and we'd get people saying, oh, we love the show and so on. I didn't get to catch many names. I remember I met Robin Hood Dial 2nd again. Oh, yeah. And I met a bunch of other people and I'm sorry that I'm not too good on remembering all the names, but his name kind of stood out to me because we'd met before. So yeah, there were definitely people that listened to the show and yeah, always great to meet listeners of the show. And speaking of
1: conventions...
0: Except we don't have to fly to this one. It would be a challenge
2: to try. (laughs) How long can you keep your wheels off the ground? About 30 seconds. (laughs) The end of this month, we're off to the glamorous, uh, sunny holiday destination that is Bedford. For the Innsmouth Literary Festival, that's on Saturday the 30th of September, running from 10am till 5 pm at the King's House Conference Centre.
0: And now on to our main topic: Mythos deities, Yig and Gatanathoa. We're once
2: again turning our attention to the deities of the Cthulhu Mythos. This time we're discussing Yig and Gatanathoa two very different gods who both originate in Lovecraft's collaborations.
1: Yig first appeared in The Curse of Yig by H.B. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop. It was published in the November 1929 edition of Weird Tales, but solely under Bishop's pen name of Zelia Brown-Reed. I didn't realize this until I saw a scan of the issue and saw the byline on there. I'd always assumed that she was credited as Zelia Bishop, because that's what she's Mm. credited as when the stories have been reprinted. But apparently her full name was Zelia Brown-Reed Bishop. And yeah, I don't know whether Bishop was her married name, and maybe she wasn't married when this came out, or maybe she just left the bishop off to use it as a pen name if any of our listeners know i'd love to find out
0: lovecraft turned bishop's rough notes into a story this was the first of three such collaborations between bishop and lovecraft followed by the mound and medusa's coil these were eventually collected by Arkham house in the horror in the museum and other revisions with lovecraft finally given credit it's kind of hard to tell quite how much when something is a collaboration, it's kind of hard to tell how much one person did and, and the other person did. But it certainly does sound like there were just notes that he was sent and then he expanded it. And Lovecraft, I get the impression Lovecraft did most of the work. It's difficult with Lovecraft's collaborations to know
1: sometimes. A lot of it is quite well documented, however. And yeah, he in some cases did simply revise stories that other people had written in cases like this, yeah, he pretty much ghostwrote them from notes. And in some cases, he just wrote them wholesale on behalf of someone else and let them put their name to it. And so it was incredibly variable.
0: But the thing with Lovecraft, he's not going to shout about having done all the work himself.
1: Yes. And I mean, this was how he made his living, really, for a lot of his life he did obviously sell his own fiction but it was these revisions and collaborations and the ghost writing that kept him going.
2: Oh you say there's not too much of an easy way of telling how much work in these collaborations that Lovecraft actually did but I'm pretty sure if you see the name August Derleth on it you can tell that it's going to be the absolute minimum amount of Lovecraft and the uh, the vast majority is going to be Derleth.
1: The posthumous collaborations Were just entries from Lovecraft's
2: commonplace book, often a single sentence that Durlith then wrote up. So yeah, the Curse of Yig is set in Oklahoma. The main narrative takes place in 1899, but there's a framing sequence set in 1925, in which an ethnologist visits an asylum in Oklahoma to learn why Yig, the half-human father of serpents, is a shunned and feared object in central Oklahoma.
1: And I was quite taken with that description or rather taken by that description of him being half human because i don't think Hmm. we see this an awful lot in the mythos obviously there's wilbur waitley if we're thinking of demigods but this description of yig as being half human is intriguing
0: yeah it's quite an unusual thing certainly in the call of cthulhu Rulebook, it describes him as a human figure with a snake-like or serpent-like head or regular head.
1: Mm. The ethnologist is making a larger study of snake gods in the Americas. I had always felt, from well-defined undertones of legend and archaeology, the great Quetzalcoatl, benign snake god of the Mexicans, had had an older and darker prototype. But everything was tantalising and incomplete, for above the border the cult
0: of the snake was hedged about by fear and furtiveness." A doctor offers to show him what you might call a victim of Yig's curse, a physically living victim. The doctor explains that the thing doesn't seem to age or change much. In one of the rooms of the
2: asylum the ethnologist sees the victim. The moving object was almost of human size, and entirely devoid of clothing. It was absolutely hairless, and its tawny looking back seemed subtly squamous in the dim, ghoulish light. Around the shoulders it was rather speckled and brownish, and the head was very curiously flat. As it looked up to hiss at me, I saw that the beady black little eyes were damnably anthropoid." As the ethnologist
1: recovers from the shock, the doctor tells him a bit more. It seems that Yig, the snake-god of the Central Plains tribes, presumably the primal source of the more southerly Quetzalcoatl or Kukulkan, was an odd, half-anthropomorphic devil of highly arbitrary and capricious nature. He was not wholly evil, and was usually quite well disposed toward those who gave proper respect to him and his children, the serpents. But in the autumn, he became abnormally ravenous, and had to be driven away by means of suitable rights. This was why the Tom-Toms, the Pawnee, Wichita, and Caddo country, pounded ceaselessly week in, week out in August, September, and October, and why the medicine men made strange noises with rattles and whistles, curiously like those of the Aztecs and Mayas. That puts me in mind of Aztec death whistles. Have you ever seen one of those?
0: I don't think so
2: they appeared in an episode of supernatural i'm fairly sure so and i've come across them i know i have but i can't remember them directly off the top of my head
0: yeah these
1: skull-like whistles that produce the most alarming sounds they're great i'll see whether i can find one being blown on youtube and put a link in the show notes
0: yig's chief trait was a relentless devotion to his children Frightful clandestine tales hinted of his vengeance upon mortals who flouted him or wreaked havoc upon his wriggling progeny, his chosen method being to turn his victim, after suitable tortures, to a spotted snake.
2: Better than being a frog. Is it? Well, you end up being more aligned to Sothoglu then, don't you?
0: Oh yeah, okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think I'd rather go with Sothoglu than Yig. (sighs) He's got more
2: of an interesting thing going on with him. Yig seems to just sit there and not really do much, but a bit like um, Shauna Fawn.
0: Also, we'll get on to like Yig as a deity
2: in a bit. In the main story, a couple settles in rural Oklahoma, where they are warned not to harm any snakes. Of course, the wife ignores this and kills a nest of rattlesnakes. Yeah, what are you gonna do? The husband seeks the help of a Wichita elder and is given some protective charms. Even so, the wife has terrible dreams of Yig, who appears in the guise of Satan, as depicted in cheap engravings she had seen. Just the cheap version of Satan, not the expensive one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I do like that association of Yig and Satan there, because obviously you do have the snake in the Garden of Eden and that serpentine aspect of Satan. Whether or not it's a fair comparison is a whole different story, but I can see why people would view him through that lens.
0: But also in the Garden of Eden, Eve eats of the tree because the serpent tells her to, right? Tempts her to. Yeah. And then God curses the serpent to crawl on the, the earth and like eat the dust and all that. Yeah. So clearly that means that before that, The serpent must have walked, must have had limbs. Yes. Limbs means arms and legs. What is a serpent with arms and legs? Serpent people. It was serpent people (laughs) (laughs) all along. You can't defy that logic. Yeah, there's airtight. Thus ends today's biblical studies.
1: One night, the couple find the floor of their house absolutely covered with rattlesnakes. These snakes appear to kill both the husband and the dog. When the wife spies a looming figure in the darkness, she takes it to be Yig, and, as you do, attacks it with an axe. Only to realise too late that it's actually her husband, who had, after all, survived the snakes.
0: Good that she keeps an axe
2: by the bed. Her name wasn't Lizzie Borden, by chance, was it?
0: (sighs) When the woman is found in the shack, she is maddened, writhing and hissing. Over time, her hair falls out and her skin grows blotchy, but this just seems to be age and ill health, and eventually she dies. Bit anticlimactic, but not quite. We're not there yet. We're not at
2: the end yet. Hearing this, the ethnologist asks what the thing in the cell is. That is what was born to her three quarters of a year afterward. There were three more of them. Two were even worse. But this is the only one that lived.
1: And so ends the Curse of Yig, but Yig is then picked up again in the next collaboration between Lovecraft and Bishop the Mound, where we learn that Yig is worshipped by the people of Kinyan in the city of Sath. Temples to Great Tulu, a spirit of universal harmony anciently symbolised as the octopus-headed god who had brought all men down from the stars were the most richly constructed objects in all Kinyan, while the cryptic shrines of Yig, the principle of life symbolised as the father of all serpents, were almost as lavish and remarkable. I love that depiction of Cthulhu as this sort of benevolent deity bringing mankind down from the stars... At some point, we really do need to do an episode on the mound, because Mm. there's some absolutely weird mythos stuff in there.
0: Yig is even the basis whereby the people of Kinyan measure time. Periods of alternate waking and sleeping, prolonged, abridged, and inverted as mood and convenience dictated, and timed by the tailbeats of great Yig, the serpent. Corresponded very roughly to terrestrial days and nights. The year unit, measured by Yig's annual shedding of his skin, was equal to about a year and a half of the outer world. Good. I'll set my watch by that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lynn Carter's *The Vengeance of Yig* builds upon this, telling us more of how the worship of Sethogwa drove out that of Yig amongst the serpent people.
1: I did read *The Vengeance of Yig* and. I can't say I desperately recommend it. It basically just rehashes a lot of the stuff that's in the mound and doesn't do much with it. Hmm. The only reference to Yig in Lovecraft's solo fiction is a passing mention in The Whispering Darkness. The legend of Yig, father of serpents, remained figurative no longer, and I started with loathing when told of the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name of Azathoth. And there's a very similar passage in Durlith's The Lurker at the Threshold, which is, yeah, just another simple name check.
0: And anyone wanting to read more about Yig may find Rob M. Price's recent anthology, The Yig Cycle of Interest. It collects 23 tales of Yig from the past century, although most of them are fairly forgettable. And... We get the image of a a snake on a bicycle, which I like.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to track that down. I wasn't aware that he was still doing any cycle books.
1: Yeah, they're not being published by Chaosim. I can't remember who is publishing them. Yeah. This is a quick update post-recording from Scott from the future. The Yig Cycle is published by Ramble House, and Price has done a number of other books for them recently, including the Yogsothoth sothoth Cycle. I didn't make much progress with the Yig cycle. I read the first half dozen stories from it and, yeah, I couldn't really sustain interest. There may be some gems later on in the book, but it just felt like I was reading the same kind of stuff
2: over and over again. In his introduction, Price argues that Lovecraft drew from Hebrew names for some of his creations and that Yig is derived from, and I hope I'm going to get this right, yigael meaning l is redemption by this measure yig signifies redemption which price connects to the use of serpents to represent immortality in various myth cycles oroborus been uh, something that comes to mind there mm-hmm. the introduction elaborates on this at length even linking yig to the book of mormon how you get the snake to connect to a musical i don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> He mentioned that in the Zothic Cycle as well, um, in his introduction to the tale about Tanithoa. This introduction is a trip.
1: I'm used to his introductions making some fairly wild connections to mythology and particularly to theology. But yeah, this one one was exceptional, let's just say that.
0: The H.P. Lovecraft wiki notes that Walter C. DeBille Jr.'s a movement in the grass, describes Yig as the father of a that's A-Y-I, apostrophe I-G, and the mate of the outer god Yidra. So let's take a look at how Yig is represented in Call of Cthulhu. He certainly features in some of the things that we've worked on mm-hmm. in uh, 2 Serpent. I mean, the name, I don't think we have too many spoilers for <laughs> that. It's got serpent <laughs> in the name of the book. Yeah. Bit of a giveaway,
1: though the version of Yig that turns up in the two-headed serpent is, because it's pulp campaign, a much pulpier version than we might see in the fiction. It's not exactly canon, but then again, people have reinvented Lovecraft's deities in all sorts of strange ways over the years, and yeah, I don't know about you two, but I felt free to go to town with reinventing him in all sorts of weird ways.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. You made reference there to you'd rather be a, a snake than a than a frog, Matt. <laughs> In that case, I would be able to say my dad's bigger than your dad because <sighs> Yig, he's got like 28 hit points. He can do like 2d6 damage. I mean, what's that? <laughs> the sound loss for seeing him is only 0 stroke 1d8. The worst you can take is 1d8. Mm.
2: Ah, if the malice updates that
0: oh does it right
2: what does that have one and then it's d8 plus two on a fail
0: ah that
1: is a bit beefier. yeah yeah but this depiction of him in the fiction as being this half human demigod that does sort of set him up to be i'd say physically weaker or less threatening and certainly less sanity blasting than the more alien deities of the mythos He is much more like something we'd see out of human mythology than the sheer multi-angled, multi-dimensional weirdness of the the, the major mythos deities.
0: Yeah, I mean, in appearance, more on a par with something like a, a, a ghoul or a Deep One hybrid or something like that. It's mostly human with some animal characteristics, I would say.
1: In fact, in those terms, I find it very easy to compare to Bast, because Mm. they're both operating on just slightly more than a human scale. They're both not actually that scary to look at. They both have animal connections. You could almost see them as being two parts of a more animalistic natural pantheon or sub-pantheon within the Cthulhu mythos that perhaps is rooted within the creatures of earth rather than the things that came down from the stars
0: and you get quite a lot of links between yig and various other mythos entities which is quite nice you get links mm. with like the migo and old Kinyan and and uh Yedra. various other mythos entities and there's a couple in uh malia so you get children of yig which are basically the the snakes uh often rattlesnakes and so on with the white mark on the head but you also get spawn of yig which i think is probably more fuel for games i think so uh, they're like human yig hybrids born as such a bit like deep ones again you know they can be more monstrous or they can be more human but one of the cool things about these guys is they can swallow their prey whole like a snake (laughs) so they can they can detach their jawbone and stretch their skin and like swallow up to like human size prey which you know it's a good way to get rid of bodies because snakes can digest i think they can digest bones but they can't digest hair so you know if they eat bald dudes they'd be fine (laughs) or you just shave them first and then feed them to them i don't know
1: if we're going back to the fiction the things that that poor cursed woman gave birth to in the curse of yig would those tie in at all with the depictions of either Children of Yig or Spawn of Yig, or are they something completely different?
0: Yeah, I think Spawn of Yig, but they'd be like the particularly monstrous ones. So they can be, you know, there's they've made it as a sliding scale, which is, I think, good for gaming.
1: Yeah, because what we see in the story is more... Pathetic and dangerous. This sort of and limbless thing that just wriggles around on the floor almost helplessly.
0: Mm. So overall, you know, I think the important thing is, can I punch it? Well, yeah, you, I think I probably could. If I get a crit, maybe not a punch. You know, maybe like if you got a, it's just a knife or a club or something, and you get a crit, then that goes through his armor. Crits go through his armor. With a few good rolls, I reckon you could maybe take him.
2: Although he does have 90% in fighting, and then if he decides one of that attack is going to be a bite, then you've got to make an extreme con roll, otherwise you're just flat out dead.
0: But he's got to grasp you with a a melee attack first, and then he can bite for 95%. So if you can manage to dodge his attacks for long enough, and then get a a few good hits, if there's a bunch of you, I reckon, you know, you might sacrifice one or two investigators, but it'll be worth it.
1: We'll be back in a moment with a look at Getanathoa.
2: Have you visited our Red Bubble store? We have t shirts, stickers, and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustones.com.
0: And let's move on to part two, Getanothoa.
1: Well, first of all, how do we pronounce that? Because we're going to be looking at a bit of media involving Gatanathoa next episode, and they pronounce it very differently at that.
0: Do they, how do they say it?
1: Getanothoa, I think.
0: Right. I mean, this is pretty much a constant with all mythos deities, really, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah but i've always just said gatanathoa it doesn't sound yeah particularly weird or alien like that i do prefer the thoa version of it just for that but it's a pain in the ass to say so I'm, I'm not going to
0: well we'll get on to specific directions on how to say it in the next episode <laughs> yes with the whole tongue holding thing but we'll we'll leave that for now and we'll we'll return to that <laughs> so i think we're going to kick off with looking at gatanathoa in fiction.
2: Gatanathawa first appeared in Out of the Aeons, a collaboration between Lovecraft and Hazel Heald. Again, Lovecraft was uncredited, boo, when the story first <laughs> appeared in the April 1935 issue of Weird Tales. And this was only credited when the story appeared in The Horror in the Museum and other revisions.
1: Out of the Aeons takes place in the Cabot Museum in Boston, with a flashback to Ancient Moo the museum curator tells of a renewed interest in a strange mummy that had been recovered in 1878 when an island rose briefly above the surface of the pacific as seems to happen so often in
0: lovecraft stories the mummy was that of a medium-sized man of unknown race and was cast in a peculiar crouching posture the face half shielded by claw-like hands had its underjaw thrust far forward while the shriveled features bore an expression of fright so hideous that few spectators could view them unmoved. The eyes were closed, with lids clamped down tightly over eyeballs apparently bulging and prominent. Bits of hair and beard remained, and the colour of the whole was a sort of dull, neutral grey. In texture, the thing was half leathery and half stony, forming an insoluble enigma, to those experts who sought to ascertain how it was embalmed. Hmm. Dun dun dun. <laughs>
1: I really do like that description. And there's certainly a bit I wrote for well, a book a while back that draws very
2: heavily on that because I found it creepy as hell. Found with the body was a cylinder of unknown metal containing a roll of thin, bluish-white membrane of equally unknown nature, inscribed with peculiar characters in a greyish, indeterminable pigment. Over the decades, esoteric scholars link this mummy
1: to an account of ancient Mu that's described in von Juntz's Nameless Cults. In this tale, Tiog, a priest of shub Attempts to challenge Gitanathoa, a hellish god or patron demon brought from Yagoth by the Migo and imprisoned in a crypt within the volcano Yadithgo. This description of him as being a patron demon brought from Yagoth by the, mm. the Migo is, again, quite weird. I'd, I'd forgotten that aspect of it before I reread this story for this episode.
0: Yeah, it is quite strange. Agreed. People said that if no victims were offered, Katanathoa would ooze up to the light of day and lumber down the basalt cliffs of Yadith Go, bringing doom to all it might encounter. For no living thing could behold Katanathoa or even a perfect graven image of Katanathoa, however small, without suffering a change more horrible than death itself. Sight of the god or its image as all the legends of Yogothspawn spawn agreed, meant paralysis and petrification of a singularly shocking sort in which the victim was turned to stone and leather on the outside, while the brain within remained perpetually alive, horribly fixed and prisoned through the ages, and maddeningly conscious.
2: Does make you think how you can have a perfect graven image of Gatalathoa You'd have the artist who would be sat there carving this (laughs) thing and go, that looks great, (laughs) (laughs) and then be frozen stiff. Not
0: a great commission to get, really.
1: Hmm. Except as we're about to find out, you can be protected against that. So maybe that's Hmm. what
0: the artist did. Uh, cheating. Maybe it's a (laughs) (laughs) self-portrait.
1: Oh, God. There's an idea. Getanathur sending selfies.
2: (sighs) Diog believes that shub Nug and Yeb, as well as Yig, the serpent god, are ready to take sides with man against the tyranny and presumption of Gitanathoa. He's protected from the terrible power of Gitanathoa by a magic scroll written on the skin of a yakith lizard. This scroll may even have the power to restore those who have been petrified.
1: It really does sound like ancient Mu was this mass of warring gods, with all this stuff with the Serpent people and are and taking over and Yig rising up against Getanathoa and so on, I mean, someone should write a campaign about that. Unfortunately for Tiog, a sneaky priest of Gitanathor swaps out his scroll for a powerless duplicate. The real scroll then passes down through generations of cultists long after Mu sinks below the waves – possibly surviving into the present day. Though it flourished chiefly in those Pacific regions, around which Mu itself had once stretched, there were rumours the hidden and detested cult of Gitanathoa in ill-fated Atlantis and on the abhorred plateau of Leng. Von Juntz implied its presence in the fabled subterranean kingdom of Kinyan, and gave clear evidence that it had penetrated Egypt, Chaldea, Persia, China and the forgotten Semite empires of Africa and Mexico and Peru in the New World, that it had a strong connection with the witchcraft movement in Europe against which the bulls of popes were vainly directed, he more than strongly hinted. The West, however, was never favourable to its growth and public indignation, aroused by glimpses of hideous rites and nameless sacrifices, wholly stamped out many of its branches. In the end, it became a hunted, doubly furtive underground affair, yet never could its nucleus be quite exterminated. And that is a very Lovecraftian worldview there, that Mm. there is this sinister cult, and of course... Yeah, it's never going to really take off in the West. It's going to get stamped out because we're civilised. But around the rest of the world, you know, though, of course, that's where it's going to take root.
0: The cult know their god by many names, including Gatanta, Hanota, Thanthar, Gatan, and Katanta. And how the cults say them is probably very different to how I say them. But <laughs> that's how we say them in Buckingham.
1: If they've got a problem with it, they can take it up with you directly.
0: Yeah. Increasing numbers of these cultists, all sinister foreign types, of course, as we just said with Lovecraft's uh, worldview, turn up at the museum and try to tamper with the mummy. When one of them is found petrified, the curator examines the eyes of the mummy, which have now opened. Of course, he sees a murky representation of the last thing the mummy saw, burnt. Into its retinas, (laughs) in brackets, physics. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, this was a real belief. Oh, yeah, no, it's cool. I don't know when it originated. I'm guessed that it was something to do with the development of photography, no pun intended. But there certainly was a belief for a while that the last thing a person saw before they died. Was seared onto their retinas, and by examining their eyes, you could work out perhaps if they were murdered, who killed them, and so on. And it's just such a weird belief that it's nice to see it represented here.
2: It even turns up in Doctor Who, so therefore it must be true.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Oozing and surging up out of that yawning trapdoor in the Cyclopean crypt, I had glimpsed such an unbelievable behemothic monstrosity. That I could not doubt the power of its original to kill with its mere sight. Even now I cannot begin to suggest it with any words at my command. I might call it gigantic, tentacled, proboscidean, octopus-eyed, semi-amorphous, plastic, partly squamous and partly rugose. Ugh! But nothing <laughs> I could say could even adumbrate the loathsome, unholy, non-human, Extra galactic horror and hatefulness and unutterable evil of that forbidden spawn of black chaos and illimitable night.
1: oh Lovecraft got his money's worth out of his thesaurus with this story, didn't he? I'll
0: put money that Lovecraft wrote that bit, not the other <laughs> mod.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: It's something of a cliche
1: in Lovecraftian fiction that things are squamous and rugose, but. This is, I think, the only time I remember seeing both of them side by side in one of his descriptions.
0: Yeah, with a bunch of other stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is the first time in some time when Lovecraft has actually sent me through the dictionary to, to look up a word, because I had no idea what
2: atom meant. It's to hide or obscure, isn't it?
1: Uh, no, it's to represent via outline.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Which,
1: yeah, is not a word I had encountered anywhere else, or at least not that I remembered.
2: A subsequent autopsy proves the Mummy has a pulsing, living brain. Da, da, da! Oh, and the cultists then murder everyone involved, so that, as they often do. At least the cultists keep to a good repertoire there. Lovecraft only mentioned Gitanathoa in this one story. Unlike Yig, not many writers have made use of him beyond the passing reference. Apart from putting him behind a glory hole in a rest stop, but that's for another story.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I was a bit disappointed with the end of this story, to be honest. Yeah. We'd had it signposted that this guy's brain was still going to be operable. But just like killing him and then cutting the top off his head and seeing his like pulsing brain inside, it's like, yeah, I'd rather he, he like came back to life and was able to talk and move about and do stuff. That would have been more fun, but that would have made for a, a longer story.
1: Yeah, but it's this thing that Lovecraft does in so many of his stories where he signposts the ending and then gives you exactly the ending that he signposted. It's just that in a lot of the other stories there is more tension so that you actually feel some sense of dread of that revelation. And here, you're right, it just feels like confirmation of what you already knew.
0: Yeah, there's not a lot of dread here because in the reveals it removes the dread because the now clearly the the brain is going to die and all that intrigue is gone really except that yeah. we know that Gitanathoa is out there somewhere I guess
1: yes under the sea because one bit I skipped over when writing the summary of this is that when this bit of land poked above the surface the pacific and the mummy and the scroll were rescued there was a trapdoor there as well
0: yeah I mean I've seen reference to like some people arguing that this is an analogue of Cthulhu, uh, mm. I don't really buy that. I mean, there are some comparisons, right? Because it's on an island, or it lives on an island that rises up out of the sea in the Pacific. It kind of drives people mad when they look at it, but yeah. in a different way. Uh, and it seems to be quite a different entity. But then it could be Cthulhu from another angle, I guess, You know, with a whole different set of myths attached to it. And a worldwide
2: cult.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean the, the cult is very similar. That it's all made up of sinister foreign types who murder to protect the cult's secrets, and the descriptions of the cult of Cthulhu in *The Call of Cthulhu* and the cult here are almost interchangeable. So, what do we see of Tanithoa in *Call of Cthulhu*? Not much. Well, yeah. I hope we don't actually see him. Chaosium weren't irresponsible enough to put an image of him in the book, were they?
0: It's not a true likeness, so it's okay. It's only a, a partial likeness.
1: I wonder how many artists they got through before they, they managed mm. to get a safe image in there.
2: They had to be posing doing duck face, and at that point you find it wasn't sanity <laughs> blasting. But yeah, it appears in at least one published scenario that I can think of, which is, uh, this is how I print now, it's um, No Man's Land.
0: Oh, right, yes.
2: Which is the one set during the First World War. yeah which I've only only played the first two-thirds of. We never got round to playing the last bit of it.
1: And there is another scenario that he appears in, but that's a spoiler.
0: Yes. You mentioned Duckface there, Matt. There is a couple of references to him waddling Yes, (laughs) in the story, which kind of amused me that Lovecraft used the term waddle for this massive uh, sort of deity. It's how all the best cultists move. So the curse of Gatanathoa in the Call of Cthulhu rules You've got the the sanity loss from seeing the god, but you've also got the curse of Katanathoa. So anyone in visual proximity to a perfect image of Katanathoa receives this curse. Each round that they they behold the likeness, they must make a con roll, and upon failure, they lose three d10 decks as. And this is the, the slow stiffening and, and creeping paralysis that that creeps in as your the outside of your body turns to a kind of leathery, stony substance and you're immobilised and locked within. So that doesn't happen in one round. It happens over a few rounds, which I think is uh, builds a bit more tension and, and interest, I think. Otherwise, kind of as described in the story. But Paul, can you punch it? yeah of course you can you can punch it but it's not going to do a lot it's got 10 points of armor and it regenerates at 10 hit points per round so you know you're going to do something pretty serious to put katana thoa down and it's got like i didn't write down how many hit points it's got a lot of hit points hmm. 110 according to the malice monster room 110 okay and it's doing like 76 damage if it, if it attacks so it's like it's going to put you down in one attack this is a proper god yig it's kind of a mm-hmm. bit of a tough dude but this is this is proper deity standard you say
2: 7d6 but that's only if it grabs you if it decides to crush you then it's 13d6
0: that's true yeah
1: on the other hand getting crushed by gitanathor would be far less horrible than not being crushed by him because if you're in proximity to him, you know, if you're close enough that he could potentially do something like that, it's far, far worse if your character survives the encounter.
2: This is maybe why the grab maneuver has an 80% skill and the crush attack only has 50%. So it is more likely mm. to try and grab you and then go, hello, and go peekaboo for a kind of good view <laughs> of itself without doing duck face that inflicts the whole D10, D100 sand loss horror.
0: I think it'd be uh, it would turn you to like the medusa effect it would just turn you to kind of stone leathery stone on the outside and then it's a luck roll to see if it you know if you pass the luck roll it rolls over you and pops you (laughs) if you fail the luck roll you're just stood there just looking out forever trapped
1: but of course there is that scroll that we see mentioned in the story that could potentially revive you afterwards Mm. and i did Wonder what you could do with that because I think Katanathoa as a deity is a comparatively difficult one to use directly in the scenario. Because, I mean, for a start, he's trapped in a volcano and moo. I mean, you could do stuff with images of him and so on, but he's a difficult deity to bring into general play. But that scroll. I could imagine doing a pulp game where, for example, you've got these cultists who've come in to try to resurrect Tiog or someone like Tiog using the scroll and free him from his, his petrification for whatever reason. But perhaps they've got a, a faulty duplicate of the scroll, or perhaps the scroll's been damaged, or it doesn't even work quite the way they thought. And as well as liberating, or at least unpetrifying, the mummy, maybe in the museum there are other mummies that start to come to life at the same time. And uh, I would not mean, help if there are taxidermied animals and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe shit gets weird.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely more mileage in the the Tiog type character, you know, mummies that are sort of can be revived, and that's maybe the stuff you can learn from them, because they're not necessarily evil cultists. Mm. You know, they could be somebody who's gone to try and defeat Katanathoa or you know, it could be an ally even that you revive, and they're going to have knowledge from um, out of the eons, quite literally.
2: Title drop. Everyone drink. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people, possibly in strangely hissing voices, we'd like to thank, first of all, everyone who has ever listened to the podcast. We'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. And we have a number of new backers to thank by name.
0: Thanks very much to James Retty. And thank you very much to Stan Furch, And thank you very much
1: to Andrew Buchanan.
0: And thank you to Cephlo. And thank you much to Emma Catherine. And thank you very much to The Singular Ketus. And thanks to
1: Jeff
2: Gilbert. And thank you very much to William Deakin.
1: And thank you very much to Jan Wouters-Schlavleger. If we have completely mangled any of your names, please do let us know and we shall make amends.
0: And if you enjoyed this episode, we would entreat you to share it on social media and tell your friends about it. Or create a graven image of the podcast that can perhaps have
1: the same hideous effect upon people who spy it as, as those who listen.
0: Well, I think that wraps up for today. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. and Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me.
2: Hello.
1: Blasphemous tomes. Docum.